Okay, then, brothers and sisters, let's pray and ask God's help before we study his word. Our loving Father, in many times and in many ways, you spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these last days, you have spoken to us through your Son. And we pray now that as we study these words in Deuteronomy, words that were written by your servant Moses, you would help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son. And we ask these things for your name's sake. Amen. I'm a bit, um, is that a bit better? I'm getting a bit of reverberation. Is that okay? Better? Basically, can everyone hear me? Yes. Good. Okay. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we have been studying the book of Deuteronomy together. And Deuteronomy is essentially a covenant document. Now, a covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties. Uh, and Deuteronomy has got this as its essential structure. Uh, it divides into roughly three parts, namely context, commandments, and consequences that outline the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. So first, context. That's given in the historical prologue, chapters 1 to 4. Uh, here we are told that there are two parties to the covenant, Yahweh and Israel, and that these parties are not equals. Now, Yahweh is the great king who had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. So he is the redeemer, and Israel are the redeemed. He is the savior, and Israel are the saved. So as the two parties of the covenant, Yahweh is the covenant lord, whereas Israel are the covenant servants. They're not equal parties. Second, the covenant comes with commandments. It is a covenant of law. A Yahweh dictates to his servants the terms of life under the covenant. They are to be faithful to him in all things. They are to obey his commands, and they are to keep all of his statutes. And third, as a law covenant, Israel's response to the commandments has legal consequences. If they, dis if they obey the commandments and are loyal to the covenant Lord, then they shall receive blessing. But if they disobey and if they betray their Lord, well then they shall be cursed. And it is here, in the third point, in the consequences of the covenant, that our passage starts today. Please would you look with me at chapter 27, verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole covenant that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them all the words of this law. Uh, moving through the text, according to verse 4, we learn that these stones, uh, the stones that are inscribed with the law, they were to be placed on Mount Ebal. And then in verses 12 to 13, we see that all Israel is to gather at this mount and also at Mount Gerizim, opposite, to publicly declare and ratify the terms of the covenant. Look at verse 12. When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. 
And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. That is, these two mounts would represent symbolically the two legal consequences of the covenant. Mount Gerizim, the blessings. And Mount Ebal, on which stood the stones of the law, would represent the curses. Well, next, if we look at chapter 28, we see the long description of these blessings and curses. Uh, Look down at chapter 28, verse 1. We've got a picture of blessings as a picture of abundance and prosperity. Verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall, you, shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way, and flee before you seven ways. But for the curses we see the exact opposite. Look down at verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And then in verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And just as as to be blessed is to be God's people in God's place and under God's rule, well, so the curses show that that those very things would be reversed by covenant betrayal and disobedience. They would be ruled by foreigners and they would be exiled from the land that God had given them. Look at verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you have set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. So in summary, if Israel kept the commandments, if they were loyal to Yahweh, well then they would experience all the blessings. But if they were disobedient, and if they betrayed Yahweh, then the future would be very different. Israel would endure the full weight of his wrath. They would cease to be his people they would be expelled from the land. In short, they would be a people accursed. And as we shall see in this passage, that this curse was inevitable. It is the overwhelming force of this text. It is the cumulative weight of the horror which is described. It is the repeated, the emphatic, the unrelenting picture of cursing that points to this very fact. That a sinful people, relating to God under a covenant of law, are necessarily a people under his curse. 
Now, when I went up to university, I decided that I would try out new things in life. And one of those new things was that I wanted to try out for the college rowing team. Now, however, at the first meeting, uh, there were a few troubling things uh, that would have uh, dampened my spirits or my prospects of getting on the team. Uh, the first was that everyone else was about a foot taller than me. Uh, that was really quite troubling. I mean, either these guys had been standing in fertilizer uh, for most of their uh, teenage life, uh, or I had stumbled across a long-lost tribe of the Anakim. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was quite scary. I mean, these guys were brawny, and I was scrawny. <laughs> they were athletic, and I was pathetic. <laughs> now, the point is this. Sometimes failure, it's just obvious. I was never going to get on that team's shortlist. Uh, ironically, because I was too short. See, my failure was obvious. And this is exactly what this passage is telling us about Israel. Moses is getting us to anticipate Israel's failure. He is setting our expectations for Israel's curse. Now consider these three evidences. First, while there is a record of curses in chapter 27, spelled out very plainly, there is not the slightest mention of blessings. It's almost as if it was completely redundant to record them. Second, the sheer length of the curses seems very suggestive. Uh, there are just 15 verses dedicated to the blessings, but an astonishing 53 for the curses. That's almost four times as much. But third, and the most conclusive, uh, the evidence that removes all doubt, is in verse 45, Moses shifts from describing the curse as an abstract possibility, that is, a mere potential outcome, to a prophetic certainty. Look down at chapter 28, verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. Now, in fact, one translation I read this week is even more clear. It renders verse 45 as, Now when there come upon you all these curses? Now, not if, but when. So Moses is telling us before the fact that the failure of Israel is certain. He's telling us that the war, the famine, the pestilence, and even the exile, that's beyond doubt. Israel will betray the covenant. They will go after other gods. They will break the commands and the statutes, and consequently, they will go into exile. It is a foregone conclusion. It is as certain as the fact that night follows day, that Monday follows Sunday, and that Tim Phillips follows food. <laughs> Every sermon. I will try to get a Tim Phillips joke in. It's every summer, I just try really hard, gives me a small measure of pleasure. So we must ask the question, why? Why does Paul say that, that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse? Why must the law result 
in curse. As with most questions of reason or purpose, there are many answers. Now, for example, if you were to ask me, Andy, why do you do the washing up at home? I could give you four answers. Now, the simplest answer is uh, that I want clean plates. Uh, but that doesn't really penetrate the whole truth. I want clean plates because dirty plates attract ants. And I don't want ants because ants displease my wife. And as a general rule, I don't want to displease my wife, well, because that, that is the very essence of wisdom. <laughs> so, brothers and sisters, if, if you were to ask me, Andy, why do you clean your plates? I could answer quite truthfully, because I am a man abounding in wisdom. <laughs> Now the point is this, if we ask the question, why must the law result in curse? Well, there is at least a threefold cause, but it's really the last one that is the most important. The first two, you see, they describe the nature of a law covenant itself. Number one, that it is conditional, and number two, that its demands are comprehensive. But it is the last point, however, that is the most important. It is the point that the law inevitably results in curse because the subjects of the law, you and I and Israel, we are corrupt. So for a law covenant, its nature is conditional, its demands are comprehensive, and its subjects are corrupt. Please could you look uh, with me again at chapter 28, verse 1. The blessings start this way. Verse 1, if, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And now look at the curses, verse 15. But if, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. That conditionality is an emphasis which is repeated again and again and again. Verses 9, 13, 45, 47, 58. Under the terms of the covenant of law, blessing is not guaranteed. It is not free. So therefore, apparently, as Malaysians, you wouldn't like it. Blessing is not guaranteed. It is conditional. Blessings under the covenant of law are conditional upon human obedience. There's another way of putting this. The covenant made on the plains of Moab was not a covenant of grace. Now, yes, God did save Israel by his grace and not a result of their works. But you see, that act was the fulfillment of a completely different covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant in which blessing was unconditional. But in this covenant, in this covenant of law, blessing is markedly, repeatedly, and it is emphatically conditional. It is contingent 
upon obedience. Uh, and this leads us to our second point. The obedience that is required to meet the law is obedience which is full and which is perfect. Its demand is comprehensive. Look again at the curses in verse, uh, chapter 27. So beginning at verse 15. Now, brothers and sisters, you may notice that these curses, they cover a range of transgressions, idolatry, theft, murder, sexual immorality, and some of them really don't seem that hard to keep. Uh, Consider verse 21. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. How about verse 23? Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I could limp my way through life without breaking either of those commands. But that's not the point. The fact that you and I obey some of the commands is really completely irrelevant. If we break any, well then we fall under the full curse of the law. Listen very carefully to what James says. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now notice that that for James, our response to the law is really a response to the law giver. Uh, We are defying the one who said, do not murder, when we commit adultery. And that's because James understood that the law isn't a set of isolated precepts. They're not things that you can just tick off. It's a comprehensive system. It's a system which reflects our heart response to the covenant Lord. A response of either loyalty or betrayal. And it's for this reason that the last curse is all-encompassing. Look at verse 26. It is the one that's quoted by Paul. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. All the words of this law. But actually, I think there's more to be gained here. Uh, There's there's more that can be said if from a closer inspection of chapter 27. Uh, Look again at the first verse. Look at verse 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. How about verse 24? Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. Now, and consider this, right? The man who misleads the blind, well, that man is very unlikely to be identified. The man who abuses the orphan and the widow, those with very little chance of legal reprisal, well, that man is much more likely to escape justice and punishment. Now, even the curses on sexual immorality, like bestiality, well, those are the ones that are easier to conceal. Now, these curses, they seem to cover the kind of transgression that might easily be kept secret. They are violations of the covenant, which are likely to go undetected 
and therefore unpunished. And the point is very clear. The covenant was to be followed when no one was looking, when no transgression could be detected, and when no punishment could be inflicted. It was truly comprehensive. It matters what Israel did in secret. And for us, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us something quite similar. He says that when we pray, or when we fast, or when we give to the poor, we are to do it in secret. And our Father, who sees in secret, will reward us. For us, just like the Israelites, the comprehensive demand for holiness is not confined to outward conformity. It is not to be a mere show of obedience, a pretense. The terms of the covenant are to be followed by everyone, everywhere, and under every circumstance, in secret, from the heart. For this is what Hebrews says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God will hold us accountable for everything. And so we've seen the two aspects of the legal covenant that are intrinsic to its very nature. It is conditional and it is comprehensive. But it's only in light of the third point that its subjects are corrupted that brings about the certainty of curse. Look with me at chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. So here on the plains of Moab, Moses reminds us in his last verse of this section that this is not the first law covenant that God had made with Israel. No, in fact, the previous generation of Israelites had been subjects of a similar law covenant, the covenant of Sinai. That covenant had followed the same structure. Israel were reminded that God had saved them, that they were given commandments, and those commandments were inscribed upon stone, no less. But as soon as those tablets were issued, they were broken, both figuratively and literally, by Israel's disobedience and by Moses' anger. And that was not a single failure. And Moses has reminded us in Deuteronomy 9, he said to the people at Taborah also, and at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So on the plains of Moab, after repeated failure, after repeated transgression, after repeated lusting after other gods, after a history of covenant betrayal, Israel is yet again called into a law covenant with Yahweh. Yet again, Israel heard the history of their salvation and acknowledged Yahweh's exclusive claim upon them. Yet again, Israel heard the same stipulations, laws, and decrees. Yet again, those same laws were inscribed upon stone. And yet again, Israel declared in one voice together that they would walk in those ways, keep God's decrees, his commands, and his laws, that they would obey him. And so what are we, as readers, to think? Were any of you surprised to learn that Donald Trump, the three-time married man, might have had an affair? I wasn't. That was the least surprising thing ever. 
Would you be surprised that a man who gropes the, the bridesmaid and tries to get off with the hotel manager at the honeymoon, would you be surprised if that marriage lasts long? I wouldn't. What are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to think of Israel's prospect? I mean, what good are laws which are inscribed upon stone repeatedly if they're not inscribed in the heart? What good are the professions of obedience when the heart that professes is untrustworthy? Uh, what good is all the solemnity, all the ceremony, all the outward conformity, all of our confession that, that we want to be obedient if inside there is guilt, pollution, and corruption? And it is that corruption, that corruption which was intrinsic to Israel, which rendered their subjection to the law as a definite subjection to curse. But we know that that corruption is not specific to Israel. We know that we too are corrupt. And Paul explains the source of our corruption. He does so in Romans 5. This is what he says. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. He continues to say that by the one man's disobedience, by Adam, the many were made sinners. For Paul, Adam is the original source of our iniquity. In fact, he is our representative in covenant. Life was promised to him and in him to all of his offspring upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. And it's this inherent corruption which stems from Adam, which rendered Israel which renders us unable and unwilling to meet the demands of the law. Therefore, if we want life, if we want that fellowship with God, which is the essence of life, if we want blessing, we cannot have it under the terms of the law. For transgressors of the law, the only promise that is held forth to us is that of eternal death and curse. So how? creates a, an obvious dilemma, isn't it? If we know our Bible, God made promises to Abraham. He made promises to Abraham that he would bless him. He would bless all nations through him. And he made that blessing unconditional. And so if the covenant of law necessarily results in curse, if we are all under that law, then how could God make a covenant with Abraham? How could God make a covenant in which he promised to bless all nations through Abraham and to do so unconditionally? How could he be faithful to the one covenant to curse and to the other to bless? How could God commit himself to curse all of us and yet to bless some? But that is what God has done. God has placed himself in this very dilemma. For though through, uh, by the fall, man was made incapable of life under the covenant of law, God was pleased to make a second, a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners like us life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of us faith in him. And even in the law, God did not leave us without evidence of that covenant of grace. Look again at chapter 27, verses 4 to eight.
verses 4 to 8. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. You shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Now what I find fascinating about these verses is their peculiar construction. It's, it's actually very, very interesting. If you look at verses 2 to 3 with me for a second. In verses 2 to 3 of the same chapter, Moses told Israel, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them all the words of this law. Now basically, there are two commandments there. Israel is told to set up large stones and to plaster them with plaster. That's one. And second, they are to inscribe on those stones all the words of the law. Now what happens, that in, in verses 4 to 8, those two commands, well, they're split up. Uh, they're separated. They're placed at opposite ends of that sentence. And then in between those commands, inserted between the two, there are these three verses in which God says in verse 5, there you shall build an altar. An altar of stones. Now that word for altar uh, is, is apparently more accurately rendered as slaughter site. The Israelites are to build a place of slaughter, like a mini abattoir. They were to build a place of violent and bloody death. But what is more, if, if you notice that at that place of slaughter, the Israelites, according to verse 7, well, they were to rejoice before the Lord their God. I mean, that seems rather inappropriate. It seems like laughing at a funeral. You go to the Mount of Curses and, and you start rejoicing. I mean, get this. On Mount Ebal, the Mount of Law, the Mount set aside for cursing, in the presence of the stones which are inscribed with the law, the very stones which proclaim to each and every Israelite that they were under a curse, the mount on which the Israelites themselves proclaimed the curses, at that place the Israelites were to rejoice. And they rejoiced not because the covenant of law had been set aside, not that it had been ignored, not that its demands are neglected or forgotten, but on that mount of cursing, God provides his sacrifice. He provides the sacrificial death that is incurred for sin. This is our joy. This is our gospel. This is our boasting. At the cross, our transgressions of the law, our every violation, our full iniquity and our shame, and all the curses that that justifiably entails, all of that was paid by God in the bloody sacrifice of his son. This is why Paul says, when I, I think he's interpreting these chapters, he says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. On the mount of the law, on the mount that proclaims the curse, stands the cross of our rejoicing, the slaughter site of our salvation. We rejoice before the slaughter 
of the Son of God, who was made a curse for us. But brothers and sisters, I think, I think Jesus does more than this. I think understanding the covenant helps us here. Paul says that Christ was made a curse for us, but he says immediately afterwards, so that in Christ, the blessings of Abraham might come to the nations. So in Jesus, the curse is met, but also the blessing that was promised to Abraham, that is mediated. The blessing that we cannot attain by the law, that was attained by Christ and is now ours by faith. As the second Adam, Jesus has met both sides of the covenant on our behalf. He not only meets the side that says, do this and you shall die in his one atoning death, he has not merely met the penal consequence of our transgression, but he has actively met the command of obedience. Do this and you shall live. And so Jesus merits life. The covenant of law has been truly, comprehensively fulfilled in Jesus. And so by faith in him, by union with him, with him as our covenant head, our disobedience and our curse, that was counted as his, and his obedience and the blessing of life, that is counted as ours. We have that sure assurance that we are forgiven, that we receive eternal life. We have that assurance that we will not be counted as transgressors, but as those clothed with the full and perfect obedience of Christ. This is the very essence of the new covenant. This is what Jeremiah promises in 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. You see, the whole point is it's not like the covenant that he made with their fathers. It's not conditional. It doesn't require the obedience of the people in order to inherit the blessings. That's what it means to not be like the old covenant. So the new covenant in Christ is one not where you earn your blessing, but one in which you receive it by faith in the one who has earned it. He continues, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. No longer will it be on tablets of stone standing outside condemning. It will be inside. And then the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is the blessing promised to Abraham, which we receive by grace. This is the blessing which we receive by faith and faith in Christ. We stand forgiven fully in the presence of God with our covenant mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is for this reason that the adulterer, that the murderer, David, could say, blessed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is the very blessing that we receive, not by our conformity to the law, but our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we are transgressors of your law and that therefore we are under your just curse, that you sent forth your Son to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We thank you that in his death he met the penalty that your law demands. But by his full and perfect obedience, he won the blessing that is now ours by faith. And we ask and pray that as we consider these things, that you would help us uh, to be conformed to that knowledge that uh, we receive that blessing of eternal life and that sure forgiveness only through faith in your Son. Help us, we pray, never to be uh, convinced in our hearts that we earn our favor before you, but it is given purely by your grace. And we ask and pray that you would help us to live each and every day growing in the grace of our Lord, that we may be conformed to the likeness of Christ in all things, and so please you in every way. And we ask these things for your namesake. Amen.